Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Canada has new immigration targets, but why are some newcomers not staying? Also, more on the Greenbelt and Urban Boundary Expansion Scandal, Buffy St. Marie's Ancestry, CO Awareness, the Beatles going out with a bang, and the worst place for a first date is... The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The Liberal government has announced new immigration targets to hold back increases in 2026. What does this look like? Well, Immigration Minister Mark Miller says he is aiming to keep the planned target of adding 485,000 immigrants next year raising it to half a million in 2025 and then adding another 500,000 the following year. And he says Ottawa is trying to align its policy with the labor needs of our nation. These immigration levels allow us to bring in the skills and talent we need to fill the labor gaps and ensure Canada's economic prosperities, help families reunite and remain a leader in refugee resettlement. They're keeping us with our long-term focus on economic growth. Are those numbers achievable? And the other part of this is that many newcomers who come to Canada and set up shop, put down roots, whatever the case is, many of them are choosing to leave this country. Joel Sandaluck is a barrister and solicitor at Maman Sandaluck and Kingwell LLP Immigration Lawyers and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Joel, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. After hearing from Immigration Minister Mark Miller yesterday, it sounds like immigration lawyers like yourself are going to be incredibly busy over the next few years. You know, that's been the pattern for the last number of years, and it's just increasing and increasing. So, uh, you know, for me, I'm obviously happy to hear it. So there's a new study out. It's from the Institute for Canadian Citizenship, and it shows that there was a record spike in the number of immigrants who left Canada between 2016 and 2019. 1.18% of people who were granted permanent residence left Canada in 2019, way above the average. Do we know why these people wave goodbye to our country? It's hard to say exactly. There's a lot of reasons that people leave. Sometimes what happens is people show up in Canada and they find that everything is not exactly as they expected. Uh, you know, for example, uh, their employment opportunities aren't exactly what they had in mind or they, you know, they're, they'll find that even the weather is too inhospitable for them to be, uh, be able to enjoy themselves here. Sometimes what happens is another opportunity will prevent, present itself elsewhere. One of the things that a lot of people forget about immigration is that Canada is in competition with other countries, and people who are interested in leaving their current situation will often apply to multiple other nations for immigration. So they might b- apply to Canada at the same time as Australia or the U.S., and Canada may be simply the first one that comes up while they're waiting for other options. So there's a, there's a lot of reasons people leave. Um, a lot of those people also will subsequently come back. Uh, for example, if they come to Canada, if they, you know, their opportunities aren't quite what they thought they were, as a permanent resident, they're required to be here only two of the first five years after their admission. So many people will go back, perhaps wind down their affairs, perhaps sell a business or their assets in their own country before returning to Canada again. So th- there's a lot of different reasons. And um, to be honest, even economic fluctuations, uh, you know, there's there's so many different factors that co- to play with this kind of decision. The study that I referenced, Joel, was from 2016 to 2019, obviously before the pandemic, before inflation skyrocketed. Are we now seeing in 2023 or or going to see with more and more immigrants coming to Canada, more of these people who have landed here 
go back home or go back somewhere else because of, you know, some of the items you touched on, including the housing crisis that we have? It's entirely possible that we will. I mean, I guess the thing we have to remember is a lot of those pressures are not only push pre- pushing pressures, people pushing people away from Canada, but they're also pulling pressures, pulling people back to their own countries. So depending on what the situation is in other countries, they may be more appealing. So it may be more appealing, for example, uh, for someone to resume their employment in the Middle East, for someone to go uh, back to Europe where they were comfortable and where they're able to practice their profession. While at the same time, uh, if you know housing is expensive in a lot of different places, employment opportunities and inflation has uh, skyrocketed in a lot of different countries. So there's many of these things that, you know, unfortunately, we have to acknowledge are beyond our control as a, as a country. The most we can do is be as attractive to the immigrants that we want as we can be. But once they come here, there's factors that are, you know, hard to get a, get a grip on for, for any government, largely because it's not just this government that, uh, that is coming into play here. We're talking about uh, Canada's immigration targets and uh, the fact that uh, some newcomers uh, choose to leave this country after uh, a year or two or a few years after that. Our guest is immigration lawyer Joel Sandalock here on GMH on 900 CHML. Canada admitted, I didn't know this until I researched it, Canada admitted nearly 700,000 temporary residents last year. What impact does that have on the immigration process? So it's interesting. Uh, one of the things that Canada has done over the last several years has been to focus immigration or focus the eligibility for immigration on people who were already here. Uh, there's a category called the Canadian Experience Class that rewards people who are already here and already working, sometimes because they've been post-secondary students here, and puts them on a shorter and more certain track to permanent resident status. The idea being that these people are more or less are far less likely to leave if they're already established here, if they're working, they've, they've got jobs, their kids are in school, some of them own houses. And what will happen is those people will be more likely to stick. And that's generally been a strategy to keep people here and also to keep people here working in the field that is that they're trained to work in, that they're brought to Canada to work in. Largely, that's been a very successful program. And I, I believe it's going to continue to be expanded. It's also been very, very beneficial to 700,000 people for Canada's uh, post-secondary institutions as well. A lot of Canadian institutions rely on money brought in by foreign visa students. That's, uh, you know, it's been very beneficial all the way around because a lot of the times after they complete their degrees and complete their the work permits that they receive after they finish their programs, many of them will stay and make the economy better, better and stronger. You're absolutely right. Joel, appreciate your time. Thanks for uh, offering your insight and analysis on our immigration targets and everything that goes along with it. It's my pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. Joel Sandalock is a barrister and solicitor at Maman Sandalock and Kingwell LLP. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Environmental Defense released thousands, literally thousands of pages of emails and documents on Monday that shows political staff uh, within the provincial government directed changes to urban boundary expansion that would benefit certain developers, some of which has direct impact here in Hamilton. And also, Global News has also learned that the RCMP has started booking appointments with civil servants to discuss the Greenbelt land removals. Oh, the land swap scandal. Ford government is knee-deep into that as well. We have the Premier on one hand telling the Integrity Commissioner under oath he's never discussed the Greenbelt land removal with this individual. And we have a company memo 
owned by this individual saying, in fact, it was discussed and the premier promised to move it forward. Tim Gray is the executive director of Environmental Defense and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Tim, good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. As you're leafing through these thousands of pages of documents and emails and, and try, to putting, try to put all this together, what's going through your mind as you're looking at all this, all this details, all this data? Well, I think uh, broadly it's confirmation that the provincial government at a political level was directing both the attack on the Greenbelt but also uh, the massive rollback of all the work done by municipalities like Hamilton. And that the result of that, of course, is forcing sprawl onto valuable farmland, forests and wetlands and depriving us all of the resources and ability to build affordable homes within uh, urban boundaries where we need them. So um, a huge scandal and uh, confirming in detail what the Auditor General and the Integrity Commissioner had both pointed to. Now, the RCMP has begun its process of booking these uh, one-on-one appointments, I guess, with civil servants. I'm I'm sure the Premier is going to be involved in this. How do you think this is going to go down? Well, I'm hoping that the RCMP uh, does a thorough investigation and uses the powers that they have that were not available to either the Auditor General or the Integrity Commissioner. Of course, that includes search warrants that can be used to search bank records and phone records and and emails that are used outside of the government servers, etc. So uh, I'm glad that they've started that interview process. This has been a long time in coming, and the public in Ontario um, really does deserve to, to see the full truth in this. And if there was violations of the criminal code by public officials, then they need to be held accountable. Tim, do you think that this scandal, or I guess I should pluralize that, scandals, because we're talking about the Greenbelt land swap and what has happened with urban boundary expansion, whether it was here in Hamilton or other communities, do you think this is going to change the relationship between communities and developers? I mean, I think it should. I mean, the the development industry needs to play by the rules. Um, They need to participate in the official planning process uh, with integrity. They need to cooperate and uh, have their development go forward in a way that reflects the public interest. And and that means building inside of our cities and towns um, where our municipalities increasingly realize that we need to do that. Hamilton in particular is a great example where there are massive opportunities for redeveloping an urban, vibrant uh, city uh, that has a real um, infrastructure for supporting that development, a new LRT that's going to be coming, many main streets that have huge opportunities for redevelopment and to have housing that's accessible, affordable, walkable, etc. So developers need to get with that program, cooperate with cities instead of going around them uh, and trying to use their relationships with a provincial government that's shown itself to be corrupt in these matters. Um, they need to stop doing that and, and work with elected officials at the municipal level to do the right thing. The big opportunity ahead is to build more housing that Hamilton needs and many other communities are going to be going through this um, uh, process as well of, of how to do it, where to do it, and uh, and what does that look like. I know you're not an urban planner, but you know NIMBYism is, is one of the hurdles that municipal planners are going to have to vault over. Do you have thoughts on how we can get how we can get through to individuals to say, listen, this is the land that we have and we have to build these, you know, multi-residential units or or whatever the case is? Yeah, I think that uh, there is a path forward here. The Housing Affordability Task Force, the province appointed, um, did make clear recommendations about the need for the province to legislate in this space. 
we're seeing cities like Toronto um, pass their own uh, bylaws that allow new multi-residential in neighbourhoods downtown and on main streets. Um, I think uh, civil society organizations like ours are spending a lot of time with people uh, explaining that we do need to do this development inside of the cities, inside of downtown neighborhoods. You know, I live in Toronto uh, in an old neighborhood, and there's some beautiful old 20-unit uh, buildings on my street, but none of them have been built since the 1940s because uh, the zoning has prohibited it. We need to get beyond that. We need to start building uh, new houses inside of uh, our, our cities and towns. And they need to be of a size and configuration that will allow families to live there. And we need a lot of these to be deeply affordable, which requires the involvement and investment of municipalities, provincial government, and the federal government, but especially the two upper levels of government, the province and the federal government, because they have the resources and the money to support this. So that's where we need to go. Everyone agrees. And instead of pushing in the opposite direction, the provincial government needs to get with the program and uh, support development of housing to solve this crisis. I agree with that. We have in our remaining 60 seconds, because we have news coming up here. Did you think when you when you're applying for this Freedom of Information Act and these emails and documents are coming down, did you think you were going to find what you found? We did, actually, and that's why we uh, wrote the, uh, the the application that we did. I think it was very clear um, early on in this process that the provincial government uh, really was determined to open up the green belt and to reverse these official plans without any reason except to do favors for particular developers. And uh, we just wanted to make sure that we actually found the information that would uh, help to, to show that. Tim, thanks for the time, and uh, good luck with this down the road. Thanks so much. Have a good day. You too. Tim Gray is the executive director of Environmental Defense. And um, as of earlier this week, at least, the premier of this province has not yet been reached out for questioning by the RCMP. But I'm, I'm sure that is going to come, whether it's in the weeks or months ahead, as the RCMP look into this issue. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. As you probably have seen or heard, a recent investigation by the CBC is raising some questions about the ancestors of iconic musician Buffy St. Marie. Now, St. Marie has for years claimed to be a Cree woman born in Canada, but there are some members of her own family that say that Buffy is not Indigenous. She has European roots. In a video statement that St. Marie issued after the CBC story broke, Buffy said, quote, I don't know where I'm from, who my birth parents are, or how I ended up a misfit in a typical white Christian New England town. It has certainly been an explosive story, and it has had some uh, really... Um, very sobering uh, ramifications. Lori Campbell is an Associate Vice President of Indigenous Engagement at the University of Regina and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Lori, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm, I'm well, thank you. You wrote an article on theconversation.com and what I took from reading your piece was that not only are you hurt, this story has re-victimized Indigenous peoples. Is, is that what you were trying to get across? Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's a lot to this story and there's a, there's a huge impact. And, and, you know, my story wasn't, uh, you know, speaking about, um, you know, what was true or not true, but it was speaking very specifically about the impact that it's had on Indigenous peoples. And I think um, what I've noticed since then and in conversation with those who are from further away is that the impact in Saskatchewan in particular, given Buffy's close ties here, has been um, even deeper and more magnified, I would say. So is this a 100% negative impact that the community is feeling? 
it's it's I for me, you know, it's it's what I see on social media, and and I know a lot of people out here, and I, and I follow their social media, and I see this, um, you know, grief, betrayal, arguing, divisiveness, mm-hmm. people um, sort of taking a. Um, uh, a specific stand and, and really fighting with each other. And I think, you know, it's that that's kind of like breaking my heart and feeling really difficult because of the trauma and uh, sort of in arguing and, and uh, lack of trust that people are having within our community. I know as truth seekers, journalists are, you know, out to un- uncover the truth. And in this regard, I can understand why the CBC did that. And this is not to debate why they did it. But what I felt after, you know, uh, digesting the piece, so to speak, was that, you know, I-, I almost felt like it was a hit piece against Buffy St. Marie because I think she has done a wonderful job of um, really holding up the banner or-, or the flag for indigenous peoples. You know, she's uh, she has had a huge impact. I mean, you know, 10 year old me watching her on Sesame Street and, and feeling inspired. That doesn't change, you know, the inspiration that it gave me at that time. Um, but it is also important, um, you know, to for indigenous peoples to, um, you know, have opportunities, uh, you know, and, and perhaps, you know, Buffy took away some opportunities that, uh, you know, another Indigenous or an Indigenous icon could have fulfilled and, and uh, had different impact as well. And so um, it's very complex, right? Because, you know, Buffy's had a, a very long career, you know, 60 years is a long time to have a, an impact and to be doing things in the public eye like that. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Lori Campbell, Associate Vice President of Indigenous Engagement at the University of Regina, uh, wrote an article in theconversation.com titled Revelations about Buffy St. Marie's Ancestry is having a devastating impact on Indigenous communities across Canada. And I've seen many Indigenous people supporting Buffy after this story came out. Others are demanding answers um, how how divided is the community right now, or or is there a conversation to come to a, um, I, I guess a conclusion of of where to go from here? I think it's a process, and uh, you know, again, I'm, I uh, you know I was critical of the CBC in the way and the sensationalization and the way the article came out. Um, not critical of you know knowing the truth is important, uh, but it's going to be a process. It's a shock to our our system, and you know, given a, a community and indigenous communities that have um, not had a lot of trust. Um, you know, had, or had a lot of trust uh, taken away from us um, over, you know, the generations. Uh, I think that also is bringing out some intergenerational issues about like, who do I trust and what's true and what's not true. Um, and the other thing I think, you know, that the, the article didn't uh, take time to uh, touch on or, or the, uh, um, the uh, documentary was about the difference between, you know, the truth about uh, Buffy's um, origins Versus the the fact that she was traditionally adopted into the community, and and I'm a sixty scoop survivor, and I had a conversation with my birth family since this, and and uh, if we were to find out tomorrow biologically that I wasn't who I thought I was, um, or even who I claimed, uh, we've been in relation for thirty years, and uh, it wouldn't change. Um, that I'm a niece and that they're my aunties, we would have some things to work through, but uh, you know if we were um, it would be nice to be able to do that outside of the public eye. Mm-hmm. No, that's a good point. Do you think this is a setback on her path to reconciliation? Is that is that a factor in all, in any of this? Um, 
Maybe I, personally, I think a little bit with the media. I, I hope that uh, you know journalists um, and the conversations I've had, uh, even with the conversation who I wrote the piece for, mm-hmm. you know, some understanding of the sensitivity and and not uh, you know thinking about the impact of the story and and who's going to be most impacted and how and what supports might be in place, uh, you know, to help mitigate that. I. Th- hope that um you know that piece will be taken into consideration a little a little bit more you know uh justice and truth is important but um you know care and and uh um attention to uh negative impact is also important laurie i'm grateful that we had uh, this time together thank you very much for joining me today and enjoy the rest of your day thank you Lori Campbell is an associate vice president of Indigenous Engagement at the University of Regina. And it really, I mean, there's so many layers to this. There's so many ways you can look at this story. Uh, Has Buffy been pretending all this time? And if so, you know, is is uh, what kind of impact would that have if that is ultimately revealed? And she says she doesn't know exactly where she is from. And, you know, the other part of it is... You know, why would she do this? If this was the case, why would she do it? And you can also say, you know, listen, I wholeheartedly believe what Buffy St. Marie has told us in the past. And it is really, as you heard in the interview, kind of has divided the indigenous population. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Time change weekend is at hand. This weekend, we'll flip our clocks back one hour. We gain an hour of sleep. Oh, that's going to feel great, isn't it? Waking up Sunday morning all refreshed. Uh, We also change our batteries in our smoke and our carbon monoxide detectors. Be sure to remember to do that. It is also, by the way, Carbon Monoxide Awareness Week. And here to talk about that and what that entails is John Jinak. He is the executive director of the Hawkins Jinak Foundation for CO Education and a retired fire captain of 34 years. John, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rich. How are you this morning? I'm fantastic. The This issue of, of carbon monoxide poisoning is very close to home for you. You have a personal story that uh, I'd love for you to share with our audience. Uh, well, back in, uh, in 2008, uh, we lost our my niece, her husband, and both their children to carbon monoxide in Woodstock. Uh, Lori was an OPP officer and uh, information officer, and... Uh, it was a tragic loss to our family, and since then we've been advocating for carbon monoxide awareness and education. So when it comes to carbon monoxide, this is the silent killer, and I'll reference the websites for the foundation. It's endthesilence.ca. It's a silent killer because you, th- there's no smell, there's no sound, there's no, there's no nothing. Exactly. You can't see it, you can't smell it, and you can't taste it. So the only way you'll ever know that it's in your home is you have a CO alarm. So that's why we, uh, one of the things that we advocate for people to protect themselves, to get out there and get a seal alarm and put it in your house today. That's the only way you'll protect yourself. Where should we be putting these seal alarms and where should we not be installing them? Well, seal alarms uh, can be put anywhere because it's virtually the same density as air. So it'll move, uh, carbon monoxide will move through the house uh, freely and it'll find the detector. So you can put plug it into a normal outlet or you can put it on the ceiling. It, it doesn't really matter. And you should make sure you keep them at least 10 to 15 feet away from any fuel-burning appliance because if uh, when those appliances kick on, it gives off a little bit of gas that might activate the detector. And is it important that we have one on every floor, whether we're in a bungalow and we have a basement or we have a two-story detached or, or you know, townhome? Should they be on every floor? 
Well, the, the, the law states that you should have uh, CO detectors in the hallway outside all sleeping areas, whether you have them in the basement or uh, on the top floor of your home. But the foundation advocates that we have a CO detector on every floor for your optimum protection. John Janak is the executive director of the Hawkins Janak Foundation for CO Education and a retired fire captain of 34 years. More details online at endthesilence.ca as we look at Carbon Monoxide Awareness Week this week. Are there different types of CO alarms and, and do they do different things? Well, the CO alarms do basically the same thing. They, they detect carbon, any uh, uh, carbon monoxide in your home. And there are several different types. Uh, you can get just a regular one that uh, detects carbon monoxide with no bells and whistles. You can get a combo one that uh, works uh, along with a fire detection system, your fire detection system. So you'd have both combos, uh, fire and CO protection. And you also have uh, uh, more extravagant models that tell you the, the uh, severity of the CO in your home, et cetera. So, and, and there's all price ranges. They go anywhere from $39 up to $89. So, but to me, and they're all good for 10 years. So it's, to me, it's very cheap protection for your family. Yeah, absolutely. What are the symptoms of CO poisoning? Are there warning flags or red flags that people can point to? Absolutely. They, they, they emulate the, the, the flu-like symptoms. You get nauseated. You know, you feel tired, listless. Uh, but it, uh, flu also has a, a fever, not, uh, not like carbon monoxide. If you go outside and you start feeling better, then you know that it's usually carbon monoxide that's going, and because the flu symptoms will never leave you. So you should go to your doctor right away and get checked over. So if you're feeling these symptoms come on, how long do you have to get outside before it gets into a, a fatal stage? It, it depends on the severity in your home. But, uh, for example, you know, 60 to 70 parts per million, that, that within 10 to 15 minutes, it starts to become dangerous to you. So it, it, if you hear that alarm go off, it's usually uh, reaching the peak of danger, the danger zone, so you should get out of the home and, and get in the fresh air, make sure everybody in your family is outside as well, and then contact your doctor. So instead of you know fiddling with the batteries and trying to find out where the source is coming from, just get out of the home, call 911, and then you're, you'll be safe. Exactly. Call the fire department. They have the detection systems, and also they can ventilate your home and also advise you on what you should do as, as far as medical uh, attention is concerned. Uh, I understand the Hawkins Giniac Foundation for CO Education has a province-wide online raffle. Tell us about this. Yes, we have a 50-50 draw, uh, and we're trying to raise funds to help all the volunteer departments in Ontario uh, uh, to raise funds to educate their, their citizens as well as uh, provide a CO alarms in, in their communities to help the people that cannot afford them. What's the response been like, and what is the fundraising goal? Uh, we would like to raise as much money as possible, and it would be an ongoing uh, a, a raffle, for example. Every month we would do it, and it would provide funds on a monthly basis for some of these departments that don't have any funds. Of, uh, you know, they don't have funds that can, they can buy these CO alarms with. So it's really uh, good for us. And, and of, of course, any money that the foundation gets, that's what we do. We, go, we direct the money right back into education and helping fire departments um, uh, protect their citizens. And our listeners can get tickets online at endthesilence.ca? Uh, yes, you can go on. It, it's on It's on the, um, if you go on endthesilence.ca, it'll direct you to where to go. Excellent. John, appreciate the time. Good luck with the raffle. And uh, thanks for informing our listeners about uh, CO education and uh, the uh, the things that we should be doing when we hear that alarm.
Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. John Janiak is the executive director of the Hawkins Janiak Foundation for CO Education, a retired fire captain of 34 years. Raffle tickets, all sorts of information online, and the silence.ca. By the way, in 2014, there was a law that was passed here in Ontario, the Hawkins Janiak Act. Uh, named in honor of the family to make CO alarms mandatory, like smoke detectors, in all homes regardless of age, which I think is uh, a must. Absolutely. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Beatles will be dropping their final song with an assist from AI tomorrow. It's called Now and Then, and it is a remarkable, uh, well, we're hearing a remarkable song. For a variety of reasons, and to help dissect what it's all about, is our next guest, Eric Alper, publicist, music commentator, all-around good guy, and joins us on GMH. Eric, good morning. Did you ever think in your rest of your life that you would actually get to say the words, there's a new Beatles song and it comes <laughs> out today? It's, it's, no, I wouldn't know. I would never have said that. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's kind of a, kind of a, a wild thing to be able to say, um, especially at the DJ. Because, you know, I'm sure that you've had those moments where you thought, I wonder what it would be like to talk about a new Led Zeppelin song or introduce the Beatles once again to people on air. But here we go. We, we've got it. It's going to be launched at uh, 14 uh, in at, you know, I don't know. What is that? That's 10 o'clock this morning, it looks like. So uh, 1400 hour GMT. So I know looking on YouTube, there's about 6,000 people that are still online waiting to be the first people in the world to hear it. <laughs> this song, it's called Now and Then. It's 45 years in the making. It comes obviously decades after the, the murder of John Lennon and even after the death of George Harrison, although they have a big input in this song. How was this put together? Because we understand AI was a big factor in this. Yeah, you know, it took 45 years to set up Ringo's drum set. And then um, after <laughs> that, once it was all set up, no. Um, there was, um, in, in the documentary that came out um, recently called Get Back, um, it really, really showed how boring the studio could be even when the Beatles are in it. But the fascinating thing about the documentary was that it was directed by Peter Jackson, who did Lord of the Rings among others. And he literally invented technology that allowed the separation of voices to be easily done Meaning that when John and Paul were sitting in a corner whispering to one another while there was hustle and bustle and noise around, Peter Jackson's team actually invented AI technology and machine learning to be able to separate all the voices from the stuff that nobody really needed to, to do. Um, there was a number of songs that... Um, that the Beatles were working on that just never really saw the light of the day. One of them is Free as a Bird. The other one is Real Love. Both of those got released during the Anthology 1 and Anthology 2 albums back in the early 1990s. But there was another song that Yoko Ono gave Paul and George and Ringo um, at the time called Now, uh, now and Then. And they kind of ran out of time. The The vocals were a little bit muddy. The cassette tape was a little bit dusty. And so they just kind of gave it to Peter Jackson to say, here, see what you can do with this one since you're able to separate all the noises 
off of it and make John Lennon's voice clear again. And that's essentially what they did. But AI technology, it's, it, it, they didn't make John Lennon sing anything that he didn't sing. You're not making him play anything that he wanted to play, especially with George Harrison now gone. What they were able to do is kind of clean up the stuff. And, uh, and now we've got a brand new Beatles song. Eric Alper is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Eric is a publicist, music commentator, and is talking to us about Now and Then, the Beatles' latest and final song, which and I've, I've done the, the, the time conversion. It's 10 a.m. Eastern time today, and it's, uh, I thought it was tomorrow. It's actually today, uh, 2 p.m. this afternoon in uh, Greenwich Mean Time is, is how it's uh, being uh, displayed. But he- here's a question for you, because the BBC was reporting earlier that those who have heard the finished track say it's a poignant and moving reflection on the band's friendship. And some people are saying after they hear or after they heard Paul and John sing the first chorus together that they cried like a baby. How do you think this song is going to be received by Beatles fans especially? Yeah, I think I think for the older Beatles fan, they, they have to understand that that it is a true Beatles song. It's not an asterisk. It's not a Paul McCartney-led song. And then, you know, he's just looking for some really cheap PR. Um, You know, AI algorithms have already been used to help create melodies and chord progressions. And they're actually, we're actually using it on a day-to-day basis with um, you know, when Spot when when Spotify tells you that you should love this next song if you love this. Um, and so AI is already in our lives anyway. This is just another form of of technology that I'm absolutely positive that John Lennon would have loved. I mean, the Beatles were the forefront of what they could do in the studio. They were leading everybody with their ideas and trying to figure out how to actually get them onto tape. So it absolutely is an official Beatles song. I think for the younger for the younger demographic, it's going to be interesting because they've already had AI technology in their lives since they got on social media. Um, and in fact, right now, 20 to 25 percent of the songs on the Billboard Hot 100 studies have shown um, when they've asked musicians and producers, they're already using AI anyway. They're using AI to finish off songs or help with lyrics or um, create orchestras when you're in your bedroom as opposed to renting it all out. So I think for a lot of the older ones, they're going to be just absolutely blown away by the fact that they're listening to a group that they know so much about, that they know every single note from start to finish of their careers and hear something new that they've never heard before. Even the biggest Beatles fan in the world has not heard this as of yet. So I think there's going to be some emotion that has to do with the band playing together again and the fact that it's going to bring back all those memories of listening to the Beatles for the first time in their own lives. Another cool aspect of this Now and Then, which is uh, again going to be released later on today, is being issued as a double A side single with their 1962 debut Love Me Do. Talk about coming full circle. Eric, we'll have to leave it there. Appreciate your time as always. Enjoy the day. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. Eric Alper, publicist, music commentator, chiming in on his thoughts on Now and Then, the new Beatles track to be dropped later on today. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. All right, what is the worst place you can take someone on a first date? The internet apparently has a divided opinion after a video on TikTok showed a woman refusing to get out of a car when her date pulled up to blank. 
Where did they go? Well, here is some of the audio from the video. This is the Cheesecake Factory. This is the Cheesecake Factory, y'all. What's the problem with that? This is a chain restaurant. Who takes someone that looks like this to a chain restaurant? You want to talk about it? I'm, I'm fine with talking about it, <laughs> even in front of them. Oh right. yeah, I want to talk about it. Yeah. Come on, get up on in the car. Yeah, we're going to talk. So you expect a man to go all out on the first day. Is that right? I mean, you're supposed to. Look at, I mean, when you take out a beautiful woman <laughs> and you're courting her, because I, I get courted. So mm. you're courting her, right? You're supposed to take care of her. You're and supposed to cover her. You're supposed to protect her, cherish her, treat her well, right? Yeah. That's what you're supposed I, to do. I agree. Cheesecake Factory? Was it that bad? Shannon Tebb is a boutique matchmaker and dating expert and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Shannon, good morning. How are you? I'm great. Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm not too bad. If I took you on a first date to Cheesecake Factory, would you have had the same reaction? I mean, possibly yes, but also I would, you know, I would also be grateful that, you know, he he took me there and wanted to surprise me. But I think as women and as daters, we need to put it out there, some things that we like to do on a first date and give the guy some options as well. I, I feel like there's a lot of pressure on men to perform well on that first date. And a lot of times we have these high expectations. And when you go into a first date with those high expectations, there's a good chance that you're going to be left unhappy. There is a lot of pressure in planning the <laughs> perfect first date and you can easily get it wrong, right? For sure. I mean, there's a lot of planning that goes into the first date. There's a lot of prep. Um, that's why me as a dating coach, I, you know, I coach a lot of people on date conversation, even like what to talk about on the date. So there is a lot of pressure when it comes to the first date and also picking a, a, a good location. Worst places to go on a first date. What, what's at the top of your list? I mean, I'm not a fan of Starbucks. I find coffee dates can be very much like an interview. If you are meeting for coffee, choose a cute cafe, something that has like a Paris feel, something that's going to have a good vibe because you want that first date to still feel like a date and not like an interview. Starbucks, the tables are really close together. You can overhear other people's conversations. It's not intimate. And I, I honestly don't feel it's sexy. So if you're going to a coffee shop, maybe not a franchise, something that is kind of trendy and, and neat to be at. Totally. Yeah. Something something that has a vibe. Maybe there's some music playing hmm. because, you know, she's going to show up dressed nice for the date and also ask her, would you like to meet for a coffee at a cute cafe or do you prefer going for a glass of wine? I think when you give someone two options, it's easier for them to choose what they like to do as well. And both people are satisfied. Yeah, that makes sense. Shannon Tebb is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Shannon is a boutique matchmaker and dating expert. Check her out online, shannyinthecity.com. What are some of the best places you can take a first date? I mean, to really wow them. I mean, I, I always find like researching a really cool event, like maybe it's art, it's an art exhibit. Um, maybe it's a food and wine festival. Um, maybe it's um, going to like a cute, trendy restaurant. Um, maybe it's going for a picnic in the park. That can be fun, too, if you're budgeting. 
Um, you know, a lot of people are into activity dates as well. So you don't have to break the bank, but you do have to plan something fun and engaging so that you land that second date. So more of an experience over maybe something static like a movie. Yeah, movies are a no-go because obviously you can't talk to get to know the person. So that first date is really about knowing that other person and see if you two connect on many levels. So it's really less about where you're going on the date and like, you know, am I eating steak or is he really going to, you know, buy me this lavish dinner? It's less about that and more about are you there to be curious about your date? Do you want to learn more about her or him? And are you excited to see them again? Great tips from dating expert Shannon Tebb. Shannon, thanks for the time this morning. Thank you so much. Shannon, My pleasure. Shannon is a boutique matchmaker, dating expert, ShannyInTheCity.com to check out more of her offerings. Uh, I love some of the comments on this video, by the way, on TikTok. Uh, very supportive of the guy in this scenario who everyone seems to think handled it very well. Me included. I thought he was okay. Uh, one says, I would have asked her where she wanted to go, took her there, and then left her there. <laughs> and then the, another person says, Cheesecake Factory, give this guy a free dinner for two. And yeah, I think he might deserve that. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.